0: Good morning, family. Just want to first of all say thank you uh, for your prayers and for your support yesterday for the men's fraternal. Very glad to gather many of our men into that time together and enjoy a discussion about virtue, uh, cultivating virtue, particularly from the classical and Christian virtues from um, over a 1,000 years ago that was shaped and formed by some of the uh, major thinkers of the Christian church. Particularly, thank you for those of you who provided the excellent, again, uh, the excellent uh, meal and the foods that came together. We are men blessed and well-fed in those times. I trust spiritually uh, as well as physically. So thank you for your labors. And um, Lord willing, those, the link, uh, I did record it and have the notes for that for those who you who missed or wanted to go back and review. That should be available uh, in our midweek update. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles again to 2nd uh, Corinthians chapter 6. 2nd Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll look at the text this morning, verses 14 down through verse uh, chapter 7, verse 1. The apostle writes, do not be in unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have or share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. One of the age-old discussions and disputes within the Christian church is the question, what is the Christian or the church's relationship to the world? And the answer to that question has included a full spectrum of ideas. On the one end is what we might call absolute separation. And real attempts have been made to create a Christian community or commune, Without electricity, refusing to watch any kind of worldly entertainment, having no worldly books, wearing a distinctively different clothing from a bygone era, that's on one end of the spectrum of we will be separate from the world. On the other end of the spectrum has been an attempt to immerse the Christian community in the world as a kind of silent majority, or excuse me, silent minority, where very little that is distinctively Christian can be identified. This includes full acceptance of the culture's view on sexuality, participation in all forms of entertainment without limit, dressing in all the stylish forms of the day, and participating in every kind of religious and civil ceremony possible because, you know, we need to be a witness in the world. So there's those two ends of the spectrum. And in in between these two poles is a full array of beliefs and practices all in the name of, or at least attempting to live faithfully to Jesus and at the foundation of this debate what is the Christians relationship with the world is the text that we've read this morning for some this is the mic drop scripture it ends all debates it is a clear call to separation of anything that is considered worldly but for others this text would be a narrow and outdated command from a prejudiced ancient writer that has a little relevance to our current times So as we come to this passage this morning, we will try to understand it as it is, the word of God through an apostle who God inspired by his spirit, and then seek to apply it where we live in the here and now. So look with me, please, first of all, to uh, verse 14a, the essential admonition. This is the admonition that frames the rest of what Paul is going to say. And it is this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I'm, I'm tempted to pull this out and just drop it and then walk off the stage because that settles all the debates, right? Well, that's the essential admonition. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Well, as we come to this text, the first issue we face is to consider what Paul means by this metaphor, yoke. As most of you probably know, a yoke is a wooden cross beam that is fastened over the necks, necks of two different animals or two animals, two separate animals. Which are attached to a cart or a plow so that they can together apply their force to a common task like plowing or pulling a cart. And Paul is using this metaphor to describe a special kind of human relationship. So that's the imagery he's using there of yoke. It, it, it's, it's addressing a human relationship. The second issue that lies at this text is what Paul means by unbelievers. And there are two major options. As to what that is. The identity of unbelievers. First of all. Because of the context and flow of the passage. Great effort is made to show. That these people are those who say they are believers. But are in some way not acting. As believers. That's a very 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 common perspective. That these are quote unquote unbelievers. But really they're just believers not acting the way that they should. For instance, this could include the Jewish Christians who were coming in, infiltrating the church, who were trying to get the Gentile Christians to obey the Old Testament law. Some say, well, it's not them. It's that not those kind of unbelievers. It's the unbelievers who are acting unchristian-like, the believers who are acting like unbelievers. Or a third option is that these are the so-called super apostles that aren't really believers. So believers or unbelievers is kind of in quotes as those who say they are believers but are acting contrary to that. So that's one major category. And that's a very common category. And it's the argument from the flow of the text. I'll come back to that in a moment. But another option, which I think is the more likely, is that he is talking about blatant unbelievers, not those in the church, not the super apostles, not these, uh, these uh, Judaizers. But that he's talking here literally about those who don't associate with Christianity whatsoever, but instead are. Worshiping false gods at Corinth in the temples. Now, the primary objection to this second option, which I believe is the actual meaning of the text, is that it seems to break into the passage in a very jarring way. It interrupts the flow of thought by what seems like a complete change of subject. In fact, this change of subject, if, if you look at the Greek and even the terminology here, and what's, what's known as a hapax legomenon, which is unusual words that only use, there's like six unusual words in this text that nobody else in the New Testament uses at all, which causes some people to go, aha, Paul doesn't use this language anywhere else, therefore this is probably not Pauline. So it's the jarring change of subject it causes some people to go no 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 he's not talking about those people he's still talking about stuff within the church so this subject change seems so jarring at first that it has been suggested that this whole section that we're looking at this morning is what is known as an interpolation and that is the inserting into the text something that wasn't originally there when Paul penned it and some people say well maybe this is a Pauline saying that we got from who knows where and Put it in there, therefore it's genuine. It's just not original in the text. Or some people say, well, no, there, there's, there's speculation that even came from the Qumran community, if you know what that is, um, outside of the Christian church, between the Old and New Testament, that this was a Qumran saying because of some of the language used. And it's a non-Pauline edition. And I'll just say, show my hand here, there's no clear evidence for this whatsoever. It's complete speculation. Here's what I think is most likely, that Paul is addressing something that pops into his mind. Has anybody ever had that happen before? Like right in the middle of a conversation or right in the middle of a sermon? Suddenly you're going, oh yeah, I want to say this. Yeah, you're all laughing at me. No, we don't know anybody that does anything like that. I think think it's exactly what he's doing. He's addressing something that's relevant to the church and it's relevant to the things he's addressing. It's just not in the particular flow of the argument he has here. And in chapter 7, verse 2, he's going to come back to his flow of argument. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, that reminds me. Yada, 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 Okay, now back to this. I, I think that's way more plausible than, um, than the idea that this is non-Pauline or it's an a, a interpolation. As a matter of fact, if that six unique words in the New Testament shook you up a little bit, in the, in the whole letter itself, there's 40-something of those. Yeah, surprise, right? There's, there's 40-something unique words that Paul doesn't use anywhere else in the New Testament uh, in 2 Corinthians. So six in this passage is not that unusual. Paul is just expanding his vocabulary, or in some cases, creating new words. And you all know what I think about that. I think it's marvelous. If, if somebody says to me, that's not a word, I'd just say it is now. So I'm presently persuaded that Paul switches to a new subject here for a few verses Addressing something that's relevant and then returns to his proper subject. Now, as we look at this essential command here, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. One fascinating thing about this verse is how often it is used to either address forbidding marriage to an unbeliever or for a believer to enter into a business relationship. How many of you have heard it in that way? Right. That's that's the mic drop text. You know, you can't marry a Christian because of this verse. Oh, you can't go into a business with an unbeliever because of this verse. And we're going to see, interestingly, that has nothing to do with the context. While it may have a secondary application, it's not actually what this text is talking about. So beware and be careful how you use this. And to say, well, the Bible says this and apply it in that way. Just be cautious because that's not what Paul is not discussing marriage. He's not discussing business dealings. I think now I'll just say I don't I, I do not support a believer marrying an unbeliever. And I think entering into between a believer and unbeliever in a business relationship, it has to be done very carefully and cautiously. So yes, just not from this text explicitly. Okay, and you'll see that as we go along. It's just simply a secondary application, not something, the primary thing Paul is dealing with. So let's move on. What relationship specifically is Paul addressing in this text? Verse 14 b to 16 a I'm sorry for all the A's and B's this morning but quite frankly the uh, the guy who uh, ordered the verses and numbered these verses just did a terrible job in this section in my in my esteem and it was it wasn't the Holy Spirit or Paul uh, it was just somebody much much later so what he does here in 14b to 16 a is asks five rhetorical questions so here's what he says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers and then asks Asks uh, five rhetorical questions, all of which have the assumed answer, none or nothing. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And let me just pause to say, you can can break these down. The way to visualize them, the way they're structured is, what blank has to do with blank? Blank to do with blank. Blank to do with blank. There's five of those, and you can actually put them in two columns. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God to do with idols? So in asking these five questions, Paul is accumulating a series of terms to describe the kind of relationship or yoking that he has in mind. And notice the words, partnership. And you can go down your left-hand column there. Partnership fellowship, accord, and the fellow word fellowship is the word koinonia, which doesn't mean just hanging out with. It means close, intimate relationship. Fellowship, accord, shared portion, and agreement. Now, I could do a word study and go through each of them, but I think if you accumulate all of them, you see he's talking about not casual relationships, but something that's very, very close and intimate. These, in fact, are overlapping terms that speak of close, intimate even covenant-like relationships with people who are wanting to accomplish the same things. So that's the first column. The second column, which gives us the particular sphere of relationship that he's talking about, is also an accumulation of of terms and gives us the relational context, like not having this kind of fellowship and, and closeness with unbelievers in this particular way. Notice what he says. Lawlessness darkness, Belial, we're going to come back to that, unbeliever, and idols. That's the specific sphere that he's using in this network of terms to say, do not be yoked with them in this thing. Okay, so it, it is not a general umbrella, but is a very specific realm. And what is that realm? Well, you can see here, it has to do with law-breaking, breaking the law of God, intentionally saying we're not going to obey what God says. Deeds of darkness, like we are pursuing sin together. Belial, and then unbeliever and idols. This, this, the most unfamiliar term in this is the term Belial. The, it is, it's a Greek here, but it's taken from a Hebrew term used in the Old Testament, which is translated worthless, ruin, or wickedness. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. But what you'll notice here is that the ESV and other translations capitalize it as a proper name. It's not used as a proper name. This isn't Baal. This isn't that name. This is Belial, which means worthless, ruin, uh, wickedness. In the time between the Old and New Testament, what we find are some of the Jewish writings that begin to use this Hebrew word as a proper name. You may know the word Satan means the one who accuses or the opposer. It wasn't the original name. Satan is what he did became his name. And that's what happens here in Belial. It had become another proper name like Satan. It's the only time this is the only instance in the New Testament that it's used as a proper name for the God of this world for Satan himself. So it is yet another name given to the arch enemy of God and it's only used here in the New Testament. So as we look at what Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then it is this close, intimate, committed, covenant relationship to do lawlessness in deeds of darkness in the name of Satan with unbelievers who uh, uh, worship idols. What we find is Paul is talking about participation with those involved with the idolatrous worship found in Corinth, contrasted to the worship of the God and Father of Jesus Christ. So this has a religious context. This isn't a, a general. I, you know, this isn't a general principle about our relationship with non-Christians. This is a forbidding specifically of participating in the idolatrous, wicked worship that would be found in Corinth. That's the context. Now, the assumed answer to all these questions is what, what, what participation? And the answer is none. What, what does this have to do with this? Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing. This is an absolute, unbending, inalterable rule. There ought to be no yoking together in the work with unbelievers by participating in the worship of the gods of Corinth. This includes the worship of idols in the temples. This includes engaging in the sexual acts with temple prostitutes. This includes the slaughter of animals and the sacrifices of their gods. Those are the three major things that happen in those temples. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with that whatsoever. Don't be yoked with them in that work. So we are squarely in the realm here in the context with Paul of participation in religious worship with idolaters. As well as anything that is explicitly lawless and evil. You see, the general text of what is our relationship to be with the world? Don't be unequally yoked in any way whatsoever, or participate with any of them in anything in anything that they do, full separation, mic drop, it's just not a faithful handling of the text. So we're squarely in the realm of participation in this religious worship. And Garland, the commentator, says this. Unbelievers do not refer to false brothers who claim allegiance to Christ in this passage, however misguided they may be, but to non-Christians who espouse values, beliefs, and practices that are antithetical to the Christian faith. The unbelievers are therefore the unconverted Gentiles who inhabit the dark world of idolatry and immorality in such a city as Corinth. Which brings us next to Verse 16b, the reason, the identity reason, why is this not uh, proper for the Corinthian church to continue in the idol worship, the sexual prostitute engagement, etc., the sacrifices to the gods? Why is this improper? Because of their identity. He says verse 16b, for we, and, and that's all temple related, don't go to that temple because we are the temple of the living God. That's his argument. You see, it's explicitly religious things that we're talking about or worship oriented things here. So Paul gives this assertion. We are the temple of the living God. And he is contrasting the living God who is the source of all life with the dead and non-creative gods of the pagans. Don't go worship them because they're dead gods. They're worthless gods. Eyes they have and they can't see. Ears they have and they can't hear. Mouths they have and they can't speak. But he is the one who made the eye. Do I not see? He is the one who has made the ear. Does he not hear? He is the one who has the mouth. Does he not speak? That's the living God. There's no reason to go to the dead gods. And then what Paul does here, we are the temple of the living God. Therefore, we don't need to go to a temple to a dead God, is his argument. What he does then here is assembles a series of Old Testament texts to flesh out why they should not yoke together with unbelievers in idol worship. Loosely quoting, quoting from at least five different books of the Old Testament, he compiles these texts, he mixes them up, And then he even, as we'll see, modifies them in some very significant way. He doesn't just paraphrase. He actually changes the verse and applies it to this situation. So we read, and God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This assertion appears to be taken primarily from Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12. And this verse in and of itself would have been shocking to Jewish people of the first century as it is applied to Gentiles. Paul asserts that not just the Jews, but these formerly uncircumcised pagans who had participated in the worship of the gods, the very thing he's telling them to stop doing now. and Remember, back in 1 Corinthians, some of them were still participating in that. And he told them to knock it off, including going to the temple prostitutes. And he says, knock it off. And apparently not everybody has listened to that. And he's having to address it again. But shocking to the Jews that these former pagans who did all of that stuff. And enjoined themselves with idols and with the prostitutes. They had actually become the living dwelling place of God. The God of Abraham. They are not a building made of cold dead stones. But of living stones in whom God welcomes, lives, dwells, walks And inhabits. So why do you want to go to the the worship of false gods? Don't be unequally yoked because you have nothing to do with them, he says. This relationship with God is true because of the once and for all sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross, through whom they have intimate access. The Corinthians, as former pagan Gentiles, were once not a people of God, but now they are his people. He is their God. They are his people. Therefore, their returning to the pagan temple, sex acts and sacrifices were inappropriate because of their new identity in Christ. That's what the text is teaching us. Which brings us to verse 17, a scriptural admonition. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. This section appears to be taken from two texts: Isaiah 52:11 and Ezekiel 2034. The, the important thing about those two texts is they were originally written to speak of Israel in exile in the foreign land of Babylon. So they were living among the pagans. They weren't in the promised land. They weren't able to access their temple. They weren't able to uh, offer their sacrifices. They had been exiled into the land of Babylon where they were surrounded by idolatry. And you can read Daniel for for a little bit of commentary on that. That's where they are. And these passages come in the midst of that. So what he's not telling them is leave Babylon. Babylon. What he's telling them is to do something spiritually in the midst of exile in Babylon. There's things they should not be doing because they were God's people. They were not to participate in the idolatry and worship the false gods that surrounded them. Daniel obeyed this command that he was though in Babylon at the right hand of the ruler of the day. He was separate and touched no unclean thing and God was with him. And so he's applying the exile language here to the Gentile Christians in Corinth. So he's not telling them to move out into the country and get away from the city so that they don't have to be around all these pagan people. He's not telling them to leave their jobs so they don't have to have business dealings with non-Christians. He's telling them, like Israel, live where you are and have nothing to do with the idolatry and the worship itself and be willing to suffer the consequences for it. So like the Israelites in exile, Paul applies this passage to the Corinthians, telling them they were to be in the world, but not participate in the world's idolatrous worship. Going out, separating themselves, not touching unclean things, didn't mean leaving their context of exile, nor refusing to have common relationships with their neighbors. Rather, it meant living in the presence of God while away from their true home and in the midst of the world. So we see Paul freely applying the exact same terminology and promises from Old Testament Israel, who were the Jewish believing people. He's now applying that to Christ-believing Gentiles at Corinth. And I'm not going to expand on it now, but that's one of the reasons that we don't believe theologically, that there are two people of God but that there's one people of God and those promises to Israel we see applied and all of the imagery applied to the new covenant church, including Gentiles. Which brings us to verse 18. The scriptural admonition, depart, touch no unclean thing in the context of religious worship, particularly in verse 18, the scriptural promise. Do this and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the Lord Almighty. It's the only time Paul uses the phrase Lord Almighty in his writings, another Habakkuk's legomenon, for him at least. So verse 18 here appears to be a combination of three Old Testament texts. Deuteronomy 32, 18 through 19, Isaiah 43, 6, but most significantly, 2 Samuel 7, which seems to be really the basis of the text, and then he kind of appends on other texts a couple of other texts. And so Paul does here something incredibly interesting. This passage in 2 Samuel 7 is about God making a promise to David about his future son. So it's explicitly messianic. It has to do with the son of David who will come. You remember they thought it was going to be uh, uh, Solomon. Solomon fails. You know, that's a king fail, son fail, and eventually it gets... You know, uh, push forward, forward, forward. And then we find out that 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David to have a son who will be the son of God, is fulfilled in Jesus. It's messianic. But Paul does something interesting here. Paul appropriates the passage and changes it to make a point about the Christians. It's simply what he does. Paul appropriates this promise that is to Jesus or about Jesus. First and foremost, relating to him as Messiah, son of God, son of man, and changes the language of the promise to include the Christians. Now, how in the world can he get away with this? Well, remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about union with Christ. Because of who we are, we're not just followers of Jesus like a guru of a philosophy. We have some sort of union with him so that the promises to him The promises about him we are absorbed up into. And so what he does here is he makes a promise. I will be a father to you. It's a promise to the son of David that now because we're in the son of David is made to us. It's it's staggering how he uses this. Not only is this surprising, but Paul expands this verse in a unique instance, speaking of believers as, as sons and daughters It's the only New Testament text I'm aware of that spells out sons and daughters. You've heard me talk before about the the Greek term Adelphoi, which in the ESV is translated brothers. I've suggested it is siblings. And and a better translation, I think, would be something a bit of a paraphrase would be sacred siblings or sons and daughters or brothers and sisters. Because Adelphoi, though masculine, includes the masculine and feminine. Paul here thinks it's so important the only time he does it, abandons the generic term and specifically says sons and daughters. Typically, he'll use the term "huios," sons. So Paul here explicitly says that we are sons and daughters of the father because of the promise made to Jesus in 2 Samuel 7. He takes this text referring to the son of David, Jesus, and expands it to include the sons and daughters as the identity of Christians. That's why you should not go to the foreign gods, because you have God as your father and, and, and God, you are his sons and daughters. Which at this point ends his quotations of the Old Testament. Now he moves to a concluding admonition. Chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now remember the specific realm he's talking about. He's talking about going to Belial, idols, darkness, uncleanness, all of that that is wrapped up in the pagan worship. And now he summarizes these texts as promises, these Old Testament texts. though There's a command included. He says... Since we have these promises from the Old Testament, he essentially says this. Since we are the temple of God, don't go to the other temples. Since we have intimacy with God, don't go and try to have intimacy with the gods through the harlots and the prostitutes. Since we are the people of God, stop joining those who are not the people of God in their worship. Since God is our God, let's worship him as God and not the other gods. Since God is our father, let us act as his sons and daughters and dwell with him because he dwells within us as his temple. And because of these things, we have a duty to cleanse ourselves from all of that pagan worship, from everything that defiles body and spirit. Paul sees participation in the idol worship, animal sacrifices, and cultic sex acts as things that defile both the body and the spirit. These are not trivial. Cleansing means separating from all of those practices of idolatry and through Jesus being cleansed from all of those past participations of which they were guilty. And we notice that Paul is speaking of our actively participating in God's purpose for us and by that bringing of completion and maturity to holiness for which we've been saved. We do this, he says, in reverence and the fear of God, which is a which is a summary Old Testament and it is reverence, it is fear, it is all that it means to worship God ultimately. We do this worshiping God, not worshiping the idols. This phrase is a rich biblical phrase, the fear of God, used throughout Scripture to summarize what it means to acknowledge the true God, reverence him, worship him exclusively, and to walk before him as those who will one day stand before him. So that's my exposition of the text. What do we do with the application? As we've seen, Paul is addressing the need for Christians to not participate in this specific passage context. It's not dealing with marriage. It's not dealing with business. It's dealing with the religious worship of which some of them were still participating in at Corinth in the idols, in the sacrifice, in the the, uh, sex worship. So Paul is addressing the need for Christians not to participate in the blatant idolatry, false religion that surrounded them. For the Corinthians, this would be clear, identifiable acts of worship of false gods. For them, it would have been clear when he's talking about it. They would have seen this, heard this. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And so the first and most obvious application, I think, for us is, and the easiest, is to not participate in the religious ceremonies and practices of other religions, which has become a more common thing in our day in the name of inclusion. I'm talking about explicit, like going to the Hindu temple and participating in the worship of Brahman. It is going to a, 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 a Muslim mosque and worshiping Allah in the name of Muhammad. I'm talking about explicit. And we say, well, that doesn't seem very relevant to us, but this is relevant, I promise you, all over the world and about every place I've ever been in the world outside of America. In Africa, to separate, separate oneself from ancient ancestor worship in the Philippines, to worship the gods that are found there. And in the different places of the world, in India, which I've never been to. The idea of adding Jesus and then participating in the Hindu temple, as well as being a Christian. This is a common thing, but we live in a more apparently secular culture without such explicit thing. But, but this, is, this would have been one of the very practical applications In a foreign land where idolatry is rife and visible and clear and right there on the surface. And the answer is, in the name of inclusion, don't go and participate as a worshiper in any of these settings. So we might say, well, it doesn't seem immediately relevant to us. But for most Christians around the world, it's exceedingly relevant. What we have here, we are to have the God revealed in scripture as our exclusive object of worship. But what this text doesn't teach us, notice, what this text does not teach us is an absolute refusal to participate with non-Christians in things we may call the common good. Should, should should I go work at the homeless shelter with people who aren't Christians and somebody well-meaning says, well, we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Should I go do this at the soup kitchen? Should, should we participate in, in, in helping you know, unwed mothers, should we go do this? Well, no, we got to we got to stay set. Should we should we try to feed the hungry and, and care for the poor with non-Christians? Well, this Bible, this verse says don't be unequally yoked. And I hope that changes. If you're going to use another Bible verse, we can talk about that one. But that's simply not what this text is talking about. Now, if they're doing that at the Hindu temple and expecting you to come and participate in the worship and then distribute food. Yes, we're dealing with another thing. But but Paul is not talking in this passage about an absolute refusal to participate in the common good with non-Christians. That is not a yoking together of religious worship and all the participation of all of of the words we saw in those five questions. That's just not simply what Paul is talking about. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul assumes social interaction with unbelievers. Five nine, You should go out from those who, who are sexually immoral, but I'm not talking about those who are sexually immoral in the world. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. I'm talking about those who profess and say they are believers who are sexually immoral. Paul says, engagement with non-Christians who are sexually immoral is assumed. And that's chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Corinthians. The fact that Paul describes chapter 14, verse 22. The fact that unbelievers may very well be present in the gathering for worship. So they come in as non-Christians to worship. What do you do? Turn them away? Do you confess Jesus alone as your Savior? No. Well, you're not welcome here because you're not a true worshiper. But Paul doesn't do that. The unbeliever is coming into worship and says and falls before them and says, truly, God is among you. He expects non-Christians to be with them, and that the Christian community is loving them and caring for them. Likewise, Paul here on, on the topic of marriage, Paul mentions in chapter 14, or chapter 7 verse 12 of, of 1 Corinthians that a believer who finds themselves married to an unbeliever is not to divorce them. If we take this passage as something applying to marriage— Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, to which the Christian says, well, I got a a non-Christian spouse. Paul said, don't be unequally yoked. That must be that I can divorce them. That's not what he's talking about. And there's no caveat that says, you know, don't don't be unequally yoked unless you're already kind of married. No, this, this would lead to divorce if that's what this is talking about, but it's not. So Paul has a rich, robust, idea of engagement with the world, which this text doesn't undermine other than its worship of false gods and participation in darkness, which is enough, by the way, which is sufficient to address. What we see from Paul's use of exile language from Isaiah and Jeremiah, from this exile language that Paul quotes, he also assumes engagement in the world A passage like Jeremiah 27, 9. Seeking the welfare of the city. Seeking the welfare of the nation in which we live. This isn't a mic drop text to have nothing to do with anybody that's not on an explicitly Christian agenda. It's just not simply what this text teaches. In other words, this text does not call us to complete separation from non-Christians. In doing good things where we live. But it is a demand to not be yoked with them in the works of unbelief and godlessness and idol worship. This is an absolute non-negotiable. And there are people around the world, we think, well, that that doesn't seem very significant. People have died for thousands of years because of this, Of, of becoming a Christian and failing to go to the mosque, of Becoming a Christian and failing to go back to the Brahmins and going back to the, it may not. We might, Stephen, you're kind of soft pitching this thing. People have died because of this perspective. They understand it, so the text is not, in my estimation, justify absolute separation. But here's where it gets a bit trickier. There's what we might call the more subtle application related to our now living in what is considered a secular culture. You know, if we have another non-Christian religious background, and we come to this, and we might feel some of the tension here, but there's also a more subtle application in a secular culture. Even a secular culture has, though they don't have the kind of visible gods made out as explicitly defined by religion, they still have those things that they are pursuing as ultimate desires, what we might call psychological or heart idols. And these are the things that they're willing to sacrifice the good in the pursuit of these. And here's three examples. Just three examples. The first is wealth or the good life or our dreams or whatever you want to put. Like what I want to accomplish in life. I want to be successful. I want to have a certain career. I want to have a certain job. This is one of the idols of our culture. And what is our culture willing to sacrifice? It's willing to sacrifice millions of unborn children. It's willing to sacrifice the pursuit of that to the neglect of the poor. This is one of those things. Don't be engaged with the unfruitful works of darkness and sin, whether it is the explicitly named God of Brahman or Vishnu, or if it's the pursuit of wealth, the good life that sacrifices children and neglects the poor. A second idol is the worship of sex. The worship of sex, the participation, and you know the the, the largest altar there is in this is Pornhub. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. That is the altar that you are sacrificing on, including participation in human trafficking. And it doesn't have a specific name on it that says, you know, false god. But this text applies specifically to that false god of sex, just like it did in the days of Corinth. And the participation of porn and sex trafficking. A third idol is the love of power in our culture. The love of power. The worship of power. In such a way as that oppresses, abuses, and treats unjustly those without power to resist. These are examples of three of the gods of our culture. And this text tells us have No yoking and participation with the gods of wealth and sex and power. And some of you need to come out from that and touch no unclean thing. Instead, as daughters and sons of God, the temple of God, the people of God, we separate from such false worship and instead use our wealth as a means of generosity. We pursue sex in God's design of purity and power for the good of our neighbors. And it is right for us to pursue such generosity, purity and good with all who have the same goal. Not separate from them. Let's pray. So, Lord, we ask in the application of this text, you would help us to search our hearts, to come again to the cleansing fountain of Jesus, to be convicted and convinced of the idols, psychological, the heart idols that we still drift toward and are willing to sacrifice to. And pray then in the application of this text, you would please uh, welcome us, walk with us, uh, welcome us, And may we live with the identity, the confidence, the assurance, and the steadfastness as your daughters and your sons, we pray in Jesus' name.